A new survey shows millennials are poor, lonely, depressed, and socialist. We analyze why young Americans are so miserable. Then Apple CEO Tim Cook gives Tulane graduates terrible advice. And from the U.S. to the U.K., leftists are becoming violent and threatening our political system. We will examine it. I'm Michael Knowles, and this is The Michael Knowles Show. Before we get into that, there's a new poll that just came out on the question of illegal immigration, and I think it's a pretty telling poll. It shows that after three years now of Democrats and the left trying to move public opinion on the question of immigration, demonizing those of us who want to build a wall and enforce our border as some sort of awful, bigoted, terrible, hateful people. Even after all of that, the whole mainstream media honed in on this issue of immigration for three years. Two-thirds of Americans oppose releasing illegal aliens into the United States while they wait for their asylum hearings. Two-thirds still want to keep the illegal aliens incarcerated until they can be deported or they receive their asylum. And further, 68% of Americans want to send those illegal aliens back to Mexico ASAP. That's from Harvard Harris. I think this shows the durability of the immigration issue. Obviously, we don't have the wall yet. It's unclear whether the Trump campaign is going to be campaigning primarily on immigration or not. So we want to know what you feel about this. Uh, we want to know, should President Trump build the wall now before re-election, get it going into 2020, or should he give in to the political pressure and back off the immigration issue completely? you know, to try to win those mythical suburban voters that all the squishes are, are concerned about. I think you know how I feel about this question. We want to know what you think. Just go to dailywirepoll.com and answer a few questions. This will help us better understand where you are coming from. Also, admit it. Admit it. You think that cybercrime is something that happens to other people. Not to you, though. Nobody wants your data. Hackers could never grab your passwords or credit card details. Well, you would be wrong. Stealing data from unsuspecting people on public Wi-Fi is one of the simplest and cheapest ways for hackers to make money. And you have a lot of data on your computer. You've got a lot of credit card numbers. You've got all those websites, those weird websites that you've been looking at. I'm talking, of course, about thedailywire.com. When you leave your internet connection unencrypted, you might as well be writing your passwords and credit card numbers on a huge billboard for the rest of the world to see. To protect myself from cyber criminals, I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is very simple. It secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. You might be thinking, oh, I'm not that technologically savvy. I don't need that. You need it. All of your data are out there for everyone to see. ExpressVPN runs seamlessly in the background of your computer, phone, or tablet. Turning it on takes just one click. Using ExpressVPN, you can surf safely on public Wi-Fi without being snooped on or having your personal data stolen. All of that is less than seven bucks a month. That's like two cups of coffee. Do it. You will not regret it. You're only going to regret it when someone steals your information. It's easy to prevent, but you got to go to ExpressVPN, the number one VPN service by Tech Radar, and comes with a money, uh, 30-day money-back guarantee. Protect your online activity today. Find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash Michael. E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash Michael. For three months free with a one-year package, visit expressvpn.com slash Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, to learn more. Millennials are not growing up. This, obviously, we see this in our own uh, 
meanderings through life. This is also being borne out according to surveys and data. Millennials are not kids anymore. I know they think they're kids. I know they all think they're young and fresh faces, but millennials are actually now approaching middle age. The oldest millennials are 38 years old right now, and they are staring down middle age in worse financial shape than Gen, Z, Gen X or their parents, the baby boomers. They are looking down middle age actually in worse shape than every living generation ahead of them. Why is this? Now, what the millennials will do is they'll blame the financial crisis and the recession. Fair enough. A lot of millennials graduated during an economic downturn. This does have negative effects on your earning potential for the rest of your life. However, we've also now experienced a full decade of economic growth and falling unemployment. I mean, we have millions of jobs right now that are going unfilled because there aren't enough people who are looking for the jobs. We have virtually no unemployment at 49-year lows, and the economy is going gangbusters. We've had a huge bull run. The market is doing great. Also, by the way, during the recession and the economic downturn, baby boomers were entering their 19th, entering their 50s. So they were entering into their prime earning years during that downturn. So it hurt them as well. Everyone has had to suffer. And yet, millennials have less money, less property, lower marriage rates, and fewer children. They are not doing the things that adults are supposed to do as they grow up. Just as an example, the average household net worth of millennials is $92,000. That is 40% less than what Gen X had at the same age and 20% less than what baby boomers had at the same age. And baby boomers were hippie, dippy flower children. Yeah, I can't believe they would have any money, and yet millennials somehow have even less. The only area where millennials are outperforming the people who came before us is in education, and even that is fake. So the one area, according to all these social surveys, where millennials are doing better than other generations is in education. And the reason they come to that conclusion is they say, well, see, X percentage of millennials went to college. X percent of millennials went to a four-year college. X percent of millennials got a master's degree or a PhD. So on the surface, it looks like millennials are better educated. Except we know they're not better educated because we've talked to them and we have eyes and ears. So we know just a few little statistics. A third of American millennials believe that George W. Bush killed more people than Joseph Stalin. Two-thirds of millennials have never heard of Auschwitz. The About 50% of millennials believe there are more than two biological sexes. In really demonstrable ways, they are not educated at all. We know there was a survey from the Intercollegiate Studies Institute that tracked students at some of the top colleges in the country. They found out that seniors graduating from Berkeley, Stanford, Yale, Columbia, all these highfalutin schools, seniors who were graduating knew less about their nation's history, system of government, and civics than incoming freshmen. They had actually gotten stupider during their time in college. So they have a lot of degrees, but they don't know very much. Even that one area where they're supposed to excel, they don't. However, what did they get for all of their degrees? A ton of student debt. So the one area in education where they are actually outperforming other 
generations is they have a lot more debt. They paid a lot more to get a lot less. The average student loan balance for millennials is $10,600. And some people obviously have a lot more than that. Some people have zero. But that average is twice what Gen X owed at our age. The generation that came right before us had half the student debt on average that we do. So as a result of all of this turmoil, as you might expect, millennials are miserable. Again, not just subjectively, objectively, we can see they are miserable. You can see this in depression rates. You can see this in rates of stress and anxiety. The New York Times, like a broken clock, right twice a day, dubbed millennials the antidepressant generation. Right now, one in six Americans is hooked on anti-depression drugs. This includes one in 20 teenagers. Uh, millennials are hooked on these drugs and are getting these diagnoses at twice the national average. Diagnoses of anxiety, depression. So they're, they're miserable. They're clinically miserable. They're being diagnosed as miserable. Why? Why is it? Who is to blame for this or what is to blame for this? A lot of pandering politicians are going around and they're blaming everything but the millennials. And this is especially true as millennials become the politicians. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for instance, blames the sun monster for everybody's problems. And she just sort of whines and complains. And I mean, AOC, the millennial par excellence. You see Eric Swalwell doing this. Pete Buttigieg, to a lesser degree, does this. They blame economic downturns, they blame the recession, they blame the system, they blame white men, they blame the patriarchy, they blame everything but themselves. They blame capitalism. They've now convinced millennials to support socialism. For, for the first time ever, the majority of millennials, the majority of that generation, support socialism over capitalism. Those are all the external forces. Some baby boomers, our parents, are blaming themselves for this. Everyone's taking blame. I think the misery is mostly millennials' fault. I'll t I'm looking at that man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways, taking a little personal responsibility. I think most millennial misery is not to blame on economic cycles or politicians or the sun monster or global warming or any of those things. I think it's because of what we ourselves are doing. And that was just my hunch. It turns out I'm correct. Deloitte has come out with its global millennial survey. Can you imagine how awful that survey must have been to administer? Just talking to 13,000 millennials from 42 different countries. It looked also at a little over 3,000 members of Gen Z, and it, it identified personal behaviors that young Americans and young people around the world are engaging in that clearly are causing them not to grow up. It's causing them to live in Neverland, and, it's, and as a result of that, it's causing them to be miserable. We will get to that in one second. But first, Purple Mattress makes me feel so, so good. And it will feel different to you than anything you've ever experienced because Purple uses a brand new material that was developed by an actual rocket scientist. This is not someone who majored in lesbian dance studies in college. He majored in rocket science and then made this wonderful mattress. It's not like memory foam. It's not like an inner spring. Purple feels unique because it is firm and soft at the same time. How is that possible? I don't know. I'm not a rocket scientist, but it is. It feels great. It keeps everything supported while still feeling really comfortable. And it, it's breathable, so it sleeps cool. You won't just get super hot 
while you're sleeping on it. It gives you this kind of zero gravity feel. It's just great. I actually can't articulate how great it feels because you just have to try it to believe it, but it's amazing. When I go on the road, which I do a lot, I have to sleep on regular mattresses and I don't sleep. It's just not nearly as nice. You can get a 100 night risk-free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. It's backed by 10 year warranty, free shipping and returns, free in-home setup and old mattress removal. You will love purple. I promise you it is awesome. Right now, my listeners will get a free purple pillow with the purchase of a mattress. That's in addition to the great free gifts they're offering site-wide. Just text Knowles K-N-O-W-L-E-S, to 84888. The only way to get this free pillow is to text Knowles to 84888. K-N-O-W-L-E-S to 84888. Do it now. Get a free pillow. Message and data rates may apply. Deloitte came out with the Global Millennial Survey. And I don't think they did the survey to figure out why millennials are children and why millennials are miserable, but they identified a lot of behaviors that explain it. So just 50% of millennials and Gen Zers aspire to purchase a home. They don't want to own a home. Even fewer millennials and Gen Zers aspire to start a family. Do you know what the majority of millennials and Gen Zers want to do? 57%? They just want to see the world, man. They just, you know, they just want to collect experiences. I don't need stuff. I just need experiences. And I hear this all the time from my friends. They say, who cares about owning stuff and settling down? I just, I kind of want to be on the road doing my own thing. You know, I'm like Jack Kerouac on the road and puff, puff, pass. In a certain sense, I think people admire this attitude because you're saying, oh yeah, you don't care about material possessions. You don't care about this stuff that'll just pass away. I mean, the, the, my desk, even this leftist tears tumbler eventually after 7,000 years will disintegrate and pass away. But memories, they won't pass away. Experiences, they won't pass away. However, what this ultimately means is a, an epidemic of selfishness. You collect experiences because they're just personally satisfying and they're cheap and you don't have to build anything and you don't have to get a stake in anything. When you purchase a home, you are saying, this is my land. I'm going to keep up this house. I'm going to fix it if the roof leaks. I'm going to pay for the new oil burner if the oil burner breaks. I'm going to fill this house with kids and with furniture and with other stuff that I'm going to have to buy. I'm going to take out a mortgage that I'm going to have to pay off. Am I going to pay it off? I'm going to work. Why am I going to work? Am I going to work because it's personally satisfying all the time? No. Hopefully sometimes it'll be personally satisfying. A lot of times it'll be a job, but I'll do it because I have accountability to my creditors who I took the mortgage out from and to my wife and to my kids. And I'm going to have responsibility and I don't just get to go out and travel the world whenever I want to. I have to settle down into some duty. That's what I think it is. I don't think that it's just about money. The, the defenders of the millennial view, the ones who say, I just want to go out and collect experiences and see the world. They say, look, people graduated with a lot of student debt. They graduated in a bad economy. And so they can't afford to buy a house. Okay. Maybe that's true. But if you can't afford to buy a house, how can you afford to travel all over the world? World travel is not cheap. It's very expensive. And world travel is extra expensive because if you actually want to go around the world for a couple months, you can't work. So it's super duper expensive. And I think what it 
boils down to ultimately is, is responsibility versus selfishness and self-indulgence. Now, I have more evidence for this from the Deloitte survey. According to the Global Millennial Survey, 52% of millennials said that earning a high salary was a top priority. 52%. 48% of millennials don't care about earning a high salary. Why not? Again, the charitable view is, well, we're just not attached to stuff. We don't need your corporate structure, man. We don't need all that stuff. The, I think, more realistic view is millennials are kind of lazy. Why, if you, it's, it's just socialism, right? I mean, if you're, why would you work hard if you're not going to get that much more out of it? Well, you say, okay, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to settle for an okay salary if I don't have to work hard. The people who build things, the people who do great things, the people who really succeed at the top, they all work super duper hard. They're not willing to settle. In terms of money, if they make $100,000 a year, they want to make a million dollars a year. Some people, if they make $100,000 a year, they say, okay, cool, I'm going to only work this hard for the rest of my life. That's good. hundred grand, great. But people who really build things, who work really hard, they'll say, no, I want more. Even if they don't get more, $100,000 is a great salary. They say, no, I'm going to work even harder. The people that I've met who are really succeeding at the top of their game, the ones who have made a ton of money or have gotten super famous or have been really effective in politics, the one thing I notice about all of them is they are working all the time. They are workhorses. I think there's this myth that a lot of millennials have bought into because they bought into socialism, which is that the guys at the top are all lazy fat cats who just sit at their desk and they have their feet up and they're counting their money like the guy on the Monopoly box and they're puffing cigars and they're not working. And it's really all the people who aren't making a lot of money. They're just the ones working all the time. In my experience, I've known a lot of people who don't make a lot of money. I know a lot of people who make an okay amount of money and I've known some people who have made a lot of money. In my experience, the ones who make a lot of money are the hardest workers. They work all the time because there's not a lot of room at the top and you got to fight really hard to get up there and they do it. I think millennials are missing that message. They're saying, well, I don't want to, I don't want to work. The system's rigged against me. Ah, if I work really, I'm going to, that means I'm going to have to subordinate my will. That means I'm going to not be able to indulge in everything I want to indulge in. That means uh, then I'm going to have to make a mortgage payment. Then I'm going to have to settle in a place, in a town. And I'm going to have to like know people and know my neighbors. That doesn't sound fun at all. I want to do me. I mean, the, the only moral rule that we follow in this culture is if it feels good, do it. You see this expressed in how we treat sex in just a hookup culture rather than a more traditional culture, if it feels good, do it. You see it in how we approach our free time. What do, what do people do in their free time? They play video games and they watch porn. And that is the definition of if it feels good, do it. Same thing in our jobs. I mean, you, you see this in this social survey, 49% of millennials would, if possible, quit their current jobs within two years. Why? Because they're dissatisfied with pay and they are not advancing as fast as they would like. They come in and they want to be the boss on day one. Less than three in 10 millennials expect to stay at a current job for the next five years because jobs aren't fun. Even fun jobs aren't fun all the time. And you're told when you come from a generation, look, I came from it. I have a ton of empathy. This is why I'm passionate about this topic is when you come from a generation where you get a participation trophy 
and you get really high grades, even though you don't know that much, you're going to be dissatisfied with the real professional world. I played Little League for eight years. I think I hit the ball four times. Now, I did lean into pitches like Don Baylor, so I had a pretty high on-base percentage, but I did not hit the ball. I was not good at baseball. And guess how many baseball trophies I have? Eight. Guess how many times my team won anything, any championship, none, zero times. But I have eight trophies because they gave them to me. You'll notice in colleges now, the average GPA is much, much higher than it was in the 60s and 70s. They would attack George Bush when Bush was running for president because he was a C student. But he actually had higher grades than John Kerry, who he was running against. And why? It's because a lot of people had C grades then. Now, very few people get Cs because of grade inflation. Now people get A's. When I was in college, it was hard to get below a B+. You had to really work. You pretty much had to punch the professor in the face to get below a B+. At, at Harvard, Harvey Mansfield, who's probably the last conservative faculty member there, he gives students two grades. He gives them the grade they deserve and then the much higher grade for their transcript because grade inflation is a reality. So you come out of that world where you're told you're super duper special and everything you do is great. You come into the professional world and then most people start out as grunts. I mean, I've worked grunt jobs, plenty of them. And if you've been told your whole life that you're a winner and you're a winner and everything you do is great and you're better than this and you get into a job where you just have to be a grunt, you'll be dissatisfied with that. You want to leave it within the next two to five years. Same thing, the percentage of millennials who see starting a family as very important is now down to 39%. That's down six points from the generation. Oh, I'm sorry, that, that's down way from the gener generation before us and the generation before that. The bright side is actually, it's a little bit higher for members of Gen Z. So it's not just that things are getting progressively worse all the time. It's actually that millennials are the most stuck in childhood. Millennials are the most miserable. In terms of the behaviors that describe the difference between adulthood and childhood, the generation that came right before us, Gen X, exhibits them at a higher rate than millennials, and the generation that's coming right after us is exhibiting it at a higher rate than millennials. There's just something about our generation which especially won't grow up. I think part of this is we grew up in the Obama era, not to blame Barack Obama for everything, but talk about a mealy-mouthed, wishy-washy administration. The Obama era was hope and change. We can do anything. You don't have to work. People who built things didn't build things. You didn't build that. It just happened because of the government. When Obama ran for re-election, you had the life of Julia. Julia never had to work. From cradle to grave, Big Daddy Obama would give you everything you wanted. Don't worry. I mean, when, when Barack Obama passed the Affordable Care Act and Nancy Pelosi was trying to push Obamacare through Congress, she said, it'll be so great because right now your health insurance is tied to your employment. So you got to stay at your job to keep health insurance, which is very expensive. But now, once we divorce health insurance from your job, you can quit your job. You can become a poet. You can become an artist. That, that, now, I've looked at a lot of bad art and I've read a lot of bad poetry in my life. Most people shouldn't be artists and poets. 
most people should work at jobs. Man was made to work. But we were told during those years, no, work is a bad thing. You shouldn't want to work. You shouldn't want to settle down. You should just get everything for free. Now we're kind of breaking out of that. So I'm not surprised that Gen Z is starting to change its views on that. But do you know what the top concerns for millennials are on, according to this survey? If I were a millennial and I, and I had read all of this information, my top concerns would be, I'm never going to accomplish anything. I'm going to be buried in debt. I'm not going to have a family. We're going to have dr dropping birth rates. I'm going to die lonely. I would have a lot of very serious concerns. Do you know what the top concern for millennials is? Global warming. <laughs> They're buried in debt. They have worthless education. They don't have good jobs or good work ethic. They don't have houses. They aren't settled down. They're upset and miserable all the time. Their politics is falling down around them. And they are most worried about the sun monster and how in a hundred years, the global mean temperature is going to increase 0.2 degrees according to some model somewhere which will have some effect on the polar bears, but we don't know what. That's their top concern. Do you know what their next biggest concern is? Income inequality, the, re the distribution of wealth. Their concern isn't their own incomes, which are low and they should try to make them higher. Their concern is income inequality. They would be fine if, if everybody's income were lower, as long as they were, they were less unequal. As long as the rich were poorer, that would be okay. Not that everybody should make more money. No. It's also because of a certain entitlement. Imagine the entitlement that you would have to feel to say, yes, my second most important concern is that that guy's money is in his pocket instead of my pocket. I mean, it is literally the feeling of entitlement to somebody else's money. It's like what Bill de Blasio said, the mayor of New York, in his presidential announcement video. First line, there's a lot of money in this country. It's just in the wrong hands. That's what millennials are saying. Look, I haven't made a lot of money. I don't want to work very hard. I don't want to make a lot of money. I don't want to settle down. But there's a lot of money in this country. It's just in the wrong hands. Give me your money. And then the third biggest priority, according to millennials, terrorism, crime, personal safety. So the only actual threat to these people is the third biggest concern after global warming and after the redistribution of wealth because they, they think that rich people are too rich. Totally backwards. Now this will make people miserable. Much more than an economic downturn, much more than whatever outside force they're whining about. This attitude is what is going to make you miserable. That sense of entitlement, that hysterical, apocalyptic, ideological view of nature and, and politics, that will make you miserable. Not settling down, not having close relationships, not working hard, that will make you miserable. Hard work, I know it doesn't seem like it all the time, hard work makes you feel good. And it makes you feel good because you have actually accomplished something. Out here in Hollywood, everybody's an unemployed actor or writer or director, and they're, they're always one, should I get a day job? Should I change? Should I do something else? Success is a good thing. It fe you, you feel better about yourself. You can provide more for your family. It's nice. At a certain point, 
You have got to stop blaming daddy for all of your problems. Millennials are adults now. We talk about millennials like they're still kids. I'm 29. The oldest millennials are 38. And they're mostly unmarried and not having kids. They're not acting like adults. That is the lie. I mean, the lie that we have been told is you can be a kid forever. It's, it's a Neverland generation. I won't grow up. I won't grow up. Because we think it's nice to be a kid. Oh, how free and happy everything was when we were children. We didn't have any responsibilities. Yeah, that's nice when you're a child. But it's pathetic when you're an adult. I know you think in your, your teens or early 20s, you think, gosh, all I want to do is go out to bars and hang out and be single and hook up and do whatever. Because all of those things are super fun. They're really fun when you're a teenager or in your 20s. And they're pathetic when you're in your 50s. Because time moves on. You have to mature. If you don't mature, if you stagnate, then you will decay and you will become miserable. And this is in part because millennials have been taught awful lessons that they have internalized. And one of those lessons came to us just the other day at, at the Tulane University commencement ceremony from Tim Cook, CEO of Apple. We'll get to that in a second. But first, go to dailywire.com. Ten bucks a month, $100 for an annual membership. You get me. You get the Andrew Clavin Show. You get the Ben Shapiro Show. You get the Matt Walsh Show. You get to ask questions in the mailbag coming up on Thursday. You get to ask questions backstage. You get another kingdom. And you get the Leftist Tears Tumblr. Mm-mm-mm. That is delicious. This isn't a drink for a grown-up. This is really, when you're a little kid, you drink milkshakes. When you're an adult, you drink leftist tears. Go to dailywire.com. We'll be right back with a lot more. So the millennial generation is particularly miserable because they won't grow up. I guess that's a failure of parenting. I guess that's a failure of our educators. At a certain point, it's your own failure that you're not engaging in those behaviors. But millennials are continually being taught bad lessons. The generation after us, Gen Z, continually being taught bad lessons. And in this case, from one of the most successful people in the world, Apple CEO, Tim Cook, he's got one opportunity to give advice to graduating seniors. Here's the advice he gives. In some important ways, my generation has failed you in this regard. We've been too focused on the fight and not focused enough on progress. And you don't need to look far to find an example of that failure. When we talk about climate change or any issue with human costs, and there are many, I challenge you to look for those who have the most to lose and find the real, true empathy that comes from something shared. That is really what we owe one another. Today, certain algorithms pull toward you the things you already know, believe, or like, and they push away everything else. Push back. It shouldn't be this way. In that speech, he gives completely contradictory advice. So the first thing he says, oh, this is the worst thing he said, and he made it the center of his speech. He said, in many ways, my generation has failed you. We focused too much on the fight and not enough on progress. And what he means is, we focus too much on open debate. We focus too much on debating our ideas in the public forum 
and letting everybody have their say and then letting the good arguments win. We focus too much on that and not enough on progress, like on the issue of climate change. What is progress? Who's progress to whom? What Tim Cook is talking about is what he thinks is progress. And he said, we focus too much on letting everybody have their own say in their own self-government and not enough on forcing people to do exactly what I want them to do. We focus too much on letting people debate the science of global warming and pointing out that all of the models that the global warming alarmists have made haven't come true and how the world actually won't end in 12 years. We focus too much on that and not enough on completely upending the economy because Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez told us to. What he's saying is undercutting our system of government. And then, not five minutes later, he says, algorithms are feeding you your own opinions and you shouldn't just get your own opinions, you should hear other people's opinions. Yes, that part is true. But then why did you just tell us to stop engaging with other people's opinions and just through our own brute force and tyranny of will, force progressive opinions on the whole country? Totally opposite thinking. But that is the message that the culture is telling us. That's the message that millennials have internalized. We have become much less tolerant. We have become much less capable of civil discourse. We've become much less capable of self-government. There's a new report out from the Knight Foundation. It shows that 41% of college students, the people that Tim Cook is talking to, believe that hate speech should not be protected by the First Amendment. I bet Tim Cook agrees with that. I know Tim Cook agrees with that. One, because Apple censors conservatives, but also because he's saying we have to stop focusing on the fight. And he's using the word fight to mean debate. This is what the left has done broadly is they conflate speech with violence. And so, listen, we use the fight in a metaphorical way. The left is now actually conflating speech with violence. He's saying we focus too much on open debate. Let's just focus on progress. And, and if you're just going to focus on progress, then you have to stifle debate, which is what big tech is doing. It's what Apple is doing. It's what 41% of colleges want to do. They want to shut up people who have different views from them. Now, fortunately, 58% of college students believe that hate speech should be protected by the First Amendment. So you have 41% say it shouldn't, 58% say it should, 1% apparently too stupid to understand the question, probably shouldn't be in college in the first place. But only 58% believe that hate speech should be protected by the First Amendment. The only speech that is addressed by the First Amendment is hate speech, by the way. Because what is hate speech? What does that term mean? It means whatever people want it to mean. The left wing calls this program hate speech. The left wing says if you're to the right of Hillary Clinton, you're engaging in hate speech. So, the only reason we have to protect speech is because some people want to shut it down. If speech is inoffensive to everybody, you don't need to protect it because no one cares. You only have to protect hate speech. And 41% of American college students want to gut the First Amendment. And this, this is interesting because it breaks down a little bit by demographic groups. The majority of college women don't think hate speech should be protected. Most women. The majority of black students don't believe that hate speech should be protected. The majority of students believe that shouting down speakers is always or sometimes acceptable. I've been shouted down giving campus speeches. A lot of other conservatives have too. 
a lot of the administrators of these schools have defended that practice. But now the majority of students at university campuses, which depend on the free exchange of ideas, think it is acceptable, always or sometimes, to silence through the heckler's veto ideas that they disagree with or that they think that they disagree with, but they probably don't understand them because they haven't heard them because they shout them down. At least, at least, the silver lining is that 83% of these students agree that violence is unacceptable as a means to ending an event that you don't like. So that's good news. The bad news is 17% of college students think that physical violence is an acceptable way to shut down an event that you don't like. Again, this varies along racial lines for some reason. 60% of black students believe inclusivity is more important than free speech. What does inclusivity mean? I don't know. It's ironic that 60% of black students believe that inclusivity is more important than free speech because now at half of the colleges in America, they have racially segregated dorms, black only dorms. So you have the majority of black college students saying we need inclusivity. We're so focused on inclusivity that we should trounce the first amendment. Also, we should racially segregate our dorms, which is the exact opposite of inclusivity. It is segregation. 49% of Hispanic students believe inclusivity is more important than free speech. 42% of white students believe that inclusivity is, is more important than free speech. Now, I don't know why this varies along racial lines. I suspect it is the same problem that we've been talking about. You've got cynical people, cynical educators and cynical politicians targeting specifically black students and insisting to them that they are victims, that life isn't fair, that it's rigged against them, that they can't succeed. And if you've been told that from the time you were in the cradle to the time that you're graduating college, if you've been told that you shouldn't listen to other ideas, if you've been told by the CEO of Apple, Tim Cook, that we shouldn't have any more debate, we should just have progress, it makes perfect sense to me that you especially would believe that inclusion or, or progress or whatever euphemism you want to throw in is more important than free speech. What this is leading toward, all of it, is violence. Not just violence on campus. You know, I got attacked by that weirdo Antifa guy at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Other professors have been attacked too. There was an event with the conservative Charles Murray at Middlebury College and a female professor there got whiplash because of it. When Ben went to speak at Berkeley, it cost the city $600,000 to secure Berkeley against a five foot nine Orthodox Jew who's relatively mild mannered because of the threat of violence. But it's not just on college campuses. Now, from the US to the UK, the violence has turned on politicians. So in, in the United Kingdom, the conservative politician Nigel Farage, who is a Brexiteer, he, he wants to affect the Brexit that the people voted for, is being attacked with milkshakes. This is an epidemic going around. The, in Britain, leftists are throwing milkshakes at politicians they don't like. And so Nigel Farage just got hit with one yesterday and he keeps on walking by. Uh, Tommy Robinson, who is uh, a independent journalist, he's a political activist and he talks about questions of Islam, same thing, gets attacked with a milkshake. How do you think the mainstream media are reacting to political violence in the UK? Protesters in Britain have weaponized the milkshake. In the latest in a series of attacks on right-wing politicians, Brexit party leader Nigel Farage was doused with a milkshake yesterday. That was actually salted caramel, if anyone's wondering. <laughs> he was campaigning. These attacks have come to be known as 
milkshaking. Now this follows egging, it yes. follows pieing, there's punching. Yeah. I don't know, put some of that energy, I know, I'm sure it feels great. I'm yeah. sure people love the yeah. feeling and but, the pictures fly around the world, but, but put some of that en energy into campaigning. Yeah. Maybe the people you don't want to be in office won't right. be in office. And maybe just drink the milkshake. It seemed like there's yeah. a better oh, that, way Police are that. actually asking uh, places to not sell milkshakes. That was really interesting. interesting. That's yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, around Edinburgh, supposedly they, they actually asked places around with a political appearance not to sell milkshake. I'm sure it feels great. I think it was salted caramel. Ha, ha, ha. Look at that. Look at that, Nigel Farage. Burger King made a joke about this. They tweeted out that they were going to give out free milkshakes so that people could throw them at politicians. And I get it. It's, milkshakes are funny. And if you don't like a certain politician, isn't that, it's funny to throw something on him. Oh, come on. It's not a big deal. It's a milkshake. Oh, come on, Michael. The, the weird chemicals that they threw on you at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, they weren't toxic. It wasn't ammonia. It didn't bleach your skin. It's not a big deal. Okay, I'm sure, well, look, we're all big boys, me and Farage and Tommy Robinson. We can ruin a suit, I guess. I mean, it's, I don't like buying new suits, but that's fine. We can take a milkshake or we can take a squirt of some weird perfumes. But the principle that is being established here by the left and being laughed at by the mainstream media and by corporate America is that it's okay to throw things at politicians. So guess what happens? Not a week after these protests started, Someone decided to up the ante and throw a brick at Tommy Robinson. Brick, that's a little, little tougher than a milkshake, isn't it? I mean, this is what we said when it happened at University of Missouri. We said, okay, it's, I mean, I'm glad it was a non-toxic chemical that they squirted on me. Just as easily could have been a toxic chemical. Just as easily could have been something else out of a different kind of gun. Just as easily could have been a brick. And this is being laughed at. This is being encouraged. There is a, a a break, a fundamental breakdown of polite society, of civil society. I mean, this, this estimate that came out of the schools on the segregated dorms, at least 75 American colleges have black only graduation ceremonies and 43% of colleges surveyed have blacks only residential halls, segregated residential halls, a breakdown of civil society, the opposite of inclusion. And in this, in this era, Four in 10 Americans embrace socialism. 43% of Americans, not just millennials, mil uh, Americans overall, as millennials become a bigger proportion of the voting population. 43% say socialism is a good thing. That's up from 25% in 1942. This is all happening. You know, as Ernest Hemingway said, bankruptcy happens gradually, then suddenly. Leftism happens gradually, then suddenly. We're seeing it happen suddenly now. You're seeing it with the, the upending of our political system, the embrace of socialism. Some people are trying to fight back. President Trump, very clearly trying to fight back. America was founded on liberty and independence and not government coercion, domination, and control. We are born free and we will stay free. Tonight, we renew our resolve that America will never be a socialist country. So President Trump said this during his last State of the Union, and this was a great line. We all cheered, and some people said, well, maybe it could be. I mean, AOC wants it to be. Bernie wants it to be. What he said is literally right, though. America will never, cease, will never be a socialist country, because if America became a socialist country, it would cease to be America. America would be unrecognizable as a socialist country. America is the opposite of a socialist country. And yet people want to totally 
invert what America is and make it into the opposite of America. This radicalism is making everyone miserable. I mean, it is measurably clinically making people miserable from the gender issue to the education issue to, to the uh, civil society, to the institutions, to the way that we interact with each other, to the way we communicate, to the way that we conduct our politics. It's making people miserable. And so what does the left insist on? More radicalism. This is the left, they have the, such a knack for this. They, you, you, they'll institute a government program, government program that creates a lot of problems. Look at the Great Society, President Johnson's welfare program. So all of this welfare spending, it's aimed specifically at, at poor black Americans, but other people as well. And what happens? In the Moynihan Report, you look at it 20 years later, it turns out those government programs hurt the very people they were intended to help. They ensnared people in cycles of poverty, increased rates of crime, increased rates of divorce, increased rates of out-of-wedlock birth, lower marriage rates, higher poverty, higher crime. And so what does the left come in and say? They say, wow, that's a big problem. I guess we need more government. Government creates the problem, and then the left tells us we need more government to fix the problem. Radicalism creates the misery, then the left tells us we need more radicalism to fix the misery. The same principles apply to the culture. Feminism is making women miserable. We, we can measure this from the 1970s to the present. Since the rise of second wave feminism to the present, women have become less happy, both in relative terms to men and in absolute terms. Feminism is making women miserable. And so what do the feminists tell us? Yeah, we need more feminism. The reason it's making women miserable is because we don't have enough feminism. We have a wage gap, which is completely mythical. We don't have perfect equality. We need more feminism to fix the problem caused by feminism. The sexual revolution, making people miserable, making people lonely. So what is the sex revolution types? What do they tell us? We need more sex revolution. We need to shout your abortion. We don't need abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. We need more of it. We need more pornography. We need more hookup culture. We need less stable relationships. And yet, we keep being told. There was a, a piece just came out in the New York Times. I'm sure they choked this one down. They didn't want to publish it. Turns out, guess who the happiest of all wives are in America? The left would tell you it's uh, single Democrat women living in the city working at a nonprofit, probably, right? Or like a working in some coffee shop or something. No, this is what the New York Times reports, broken clock, right twice a day, quote, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives, followed by their religious progressive counterparts. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. The most conservative, the most traditional people are the happiest. Another survey just came out. This survey is a doozy. It showed that President Trump has made America less racist. Make America Great Again has made America less racist. We've been told for three years. New York, the New Yorker wrote, quote, hate on rise since Trump. Time Magazine wrote, racist incidents up since Donald Trump's election. The Nation wrote, Donald Trump's rise has coincided with an explosion in hate groups. Except now, there's a new survey out from the University of Pennsylvania. It shows that Americans, quote, have actually become less inclined to express racist opinions since Donald Trump was elected. Anti-black prejudice, they found, declined by a statistically insignificant degree between 2012 and 2016. So during the Obama years, racism and anti-black prejudice did not really decline, did not measurably decline. 
But then after 2016, it took a sharp dive that was statistically significant. Contrary to their expectations, the fall was as evident among Republican voters as it was among Democrats. Progressive radicalism gave us racial bigotry. Make America great again. Stark decline in racial bigotry. People who have traditional marriages, very happy. People who don't, not happy. This tells us something about radicalism and tradition. When I talk about conservatism, I'm talking about tradition. Traditional marriages, traditional American institutions, making America great again, traditional American views on hard work and achieving something and loving your neighbors. The left views tradition as an irrational madness to be replaced. The tradition, it's not a, it's not a manifesto, it's not a dogma, it's not a, an argument like the left is making, it's not an ideology. The right recognizes the brilliance of tradition. When I say tradition, I'm talking about just things that have stuck around a long time. Because what the right realizes that is that if lots and lots of people have done a certain thing for a very, very long time, all over the world, all over our civilization, maybe they knew something that I don't know. Maybe they were onto something that the social engineers who concocted a new institution or a new definition of marriage or a new definition of the economy or a new definition of gender roles didn't know. How about on marriage? You know, Gloria Steinem told us a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle during the sex revolution. Well, if that's true, then how come virtually everyone everywhere has gotten married forever? Maybe there's some wisdom in that tradition. I think people are waking up to it. But one generation has been really, really affected by this radicalism. That's the millennials. If they want to have a good life, they're going to have to wake up to it fast because time is running out. As all of us are not kids anymore, we're not living in Neverland as much as we might think we are. That's our show. Get your mailbag questions in for Thursday. In the meantime, I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. I'll see you tomorrow. The Michael Knowles Show is produced by Rebecca Dobkowitz and directed by Mike Joyner. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Danny D'Amico. Audio is mixed by Dylan Case. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. And our production assistant is Nick Sheehan. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. Hey everyone, it's Andrew Claven, host of The Andrew Claven Show. You know, if it weren't for the fact that the Democrats own the news and entertainment media, it would be obvious by now that they are living in a blithering fantasy world. Donald Trump is a racist, except who's he racist to? He's a dictator, except what does he dictate? He's lawless, but what laws has he broken? They have invented a Donald Trump of the imagination, and he ain't the real Donald Trump at all. We'll talk about it on The Andrew Claven Show. I'm Andrew Claven.